Good evening, and welcome to episode eight of Slantcast, the official podcast of Slant Books. My name is Gregory Wolf, and I am Slant's publisher and editor. We're grateful that you've chosen to share this time with us. Tonight, we're finally doing something I've been threatening to do for several months now, but haven't had time to pull off thanks to the steady stream of online book launches for newly released Slant titles. In short, we're finally going to do our first episode devoted purely to a literary topic of our own choosing. We're excited to do that because as we've conceived it, Slant's mission is more expansive than simply the publication of our own titles. We're fighting to defend the integrity of literature itself from the powerful ideologies and interests that want to reduce it to propaganda, didacticism, or just treat it as a relic of the past. We're equally concerned about the pervasive influence of contemporary technologies and habits that have made it harder to master the art of close reading, deep comprehension, and careful discernment that enduring literature seeks to cultivate in us. So we're going to continue to try to find time to undertake episodes of Slantcast that touch on literature past and present, as well as other topics related to the embattled but living tradition of literary humanism. Tonight we'll be delving into two recently published novels by Cormac McCarthy, The Passenger and Stella Maris, books that many of us have been puzzling over and occasionally marveling over in recent months. These are the first books that McCarthy has published in 16 years following his novel, The Road, and they have appeared as the author is soon to turn 90 years old. Before I introduce Jonathan Geltner, our guest on tonight's episode, I'd just like to remind you that if you have questions or thoughts about the books, you can type them in the chat. Time permitting, I will try to share as many of those as possible, or even have you pose your correction, uh, your question or comment directly. Because I read out the long version of Jonathan's biography last summer when we launched his debut novel, Absolute Music, I'll just go with the short version tonight. Jonathan Geltner was born in Eastern Massachusetts, but grew up mainly in Cincinnati, Ohio. He studied English classics and French at the University of Cincinnati, pursued graduate work in English at the University of Chicago, and earned an MFA in fiction from Warren Wilson College. He published a translation of Paul Claudel's Five Great Odes with Angelico Press in 2020, and the novel Absolute Music in 2022. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Greg. Greetings, all. <clears throat> well, let's start off with the question I want to pose to you, Jonathan. Uh, after all this time, he comes out with these novels. Were they anything like what you would have expected them to be, or did they throw you for a loop? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think I found them surprising in the context of sort of fiction generally in recent years. It's almost as if, um, you know, McCarthy's been doing his thing for a while and yet he just kind of naturally blended into some other trends or not to use that word trivially, but forces at work maybe um 
that are I sort of sense are abroad uh, in the world of fiction these days. Um, so in that sense, no. But um, and and it's been a while. I mean, I haven't read his other books um, in, in a number of years. But um, in terms of what he's done previously, um, if if this weren't you know something he'd written in his eighties, I would say, oh yeah, maybe this is a departure in a uh, in a new direction. <laughs> um, but instead, I mean, obviously he's he's at the end of his long and amazing career and so um these books come as a kind of capstone um which adds a whole another dimension to how we we perceive them um this isn't this, these aren't books that he published in the middle of his career um with presumably decades more uh, in which to write and um so i mean you, you kind of have to take it i think in in terms of where is where is he in his own life uh, and then relative to the other things he's published, and finally in the broadest context of, of fiction as a whole. And um, uh, in some, so, you know, in each of those ways, are they surprising? Are they, are they somehow not what we would expect from him? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, what I've picked up on in other books uh, in these, you know, it, he delights in, various styles um you know he has an ability to channel um this kind of distinctively american style that comes down through melville and faulkner and um he he deploys that in these books um though judiciously with, with great restraint compared to you know what he's capable of um something like blood meridian that's written entirely in that style um and um i mean I, to me i guess it didn't so it it's it's surprising um or it's a bit of a disjunct if you look at maybe some of his other books um it's not surprising if you look at the whole context of fiction and it it wasn't surprising to me as like a capstone work it felt like a summation of a lot of big ideas um and if that sounds too uh, intellectual or schematic, then um, it had a kind of elegiac farewell feeling to it, these books. Yeah, yeah. You um, know, I, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, what I find curious about it is uh, the very fact that he's sort of working in mixed registers. I mean, it's almost like he's thrown the kitchen sink in this book. There is there is the high diction of the Faulknerian Melvillian. I mean, there are moments, there are passages that are like music that you would expect from, you know, books like Blood Meridium or All the Pretty Horses. But then there's this demotic, you know, kind of slang and kind of uh, all these registers. Uh, humor thrown in, that, that yeah. was quite, you know, kind of kick for me to see, again, sort of high, low and medium varieties of humor from from these sort of, uh, you know, kind of bizarre characters like John Shedden, this kind of hedonistic, uh, you know, kind of crazy guy to kind of shady character to the wonderful Debussy Fields, the transgender uh, character who's 
just so, you know, fascinating on so many different levels. <clears throat> so, yeah, and not to mention that in some ways it feels like he's revisiting his own oeuvre. Yeah. You know, he, go, he goes back to Knoxville. He's He kind of touches, you can almost hear, it's like an overture, but at the end of the work, not the beginning of the work, like kind of gathering up all the threads of his, of his, of his literary styles and, and interests. Yeah, there's all these characters who who have like kind of gone off to just sort of die alone. <laughs> I mean, that's not really that's putting it a little too um, darkly, but and I don't know, you know, how much we want to um, sort of give away plot points and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, he's got uh, so I'll work up to the Western guy, but. Um, so there's Sheedan, whom you just mentioned, uh, and I'd like to just read just a bit from, from something um, he says in a minute here. But um, so Sheedan eventually dies, and he's from Knoxville, as is as is the, the Western siblings who are the main characters in these books, Bobby and Alicia, uh, originally Alice Western. And um, so it's a kind of, yeah, it's it's revisiting his own real roots and Sutri and all this. And um, uh, Knoxville has a kind of inexplicable presence in these books it's not the main setting but it it's like it, it intrudes at various points and she didn't goes off there and and dies <laughs> um and uh obviously the sister alicia dies um i mean you know that right from the beginning it, it's it's in the past um uh in in a, a an asylum um uh so and you've got uh western not dying but um going off to different places um in in forms of exile new orleans which is the primary setting of uh, the passenger um is not his home he's from knoxville so he's kind of already in exile um, and he goes to idaho at one point and it's really a beautiful passage in that book um and then eventually ends up in spain just kind of the middle of nowhere on the coast of valencia and um so you have these people crawling off into oh and there's the there's the crazy guy um I'm forgetting his name now but he's living in a trailer out in the bayou um and western Bobby Western goes to visit him at one point um trying to get him to show his face in the civilized world again um for the sake of his family and friends who are concerned about him um and he's just holed up in this trailer and he's uh crazy alcoholic and he won't come out really much but uh, except he does eventually actually um but there's all these these weird recluses and some of them are dying and 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 some of them are um reclu you know reclusive or, or secluded against their will um that's certainly the case with bobby western he's he's on the run from strange forces including at least the u.s government and um uh yeah they're, they're they're sort of they're departing from the world they're they're, they're done they, they can't fit in anymore their time is over um and they're sort of saying farewell to at least normal life um mainstream society and if not life altogether and and that kind of gives the books a um profound feeling of uh Sort of retreat from the world, marginality. Um, I don't know, there's various ways of putting it, but um, it does kind of somehow all add up to a feeling of farewell for me reading these books. Um, I mean, maybe if, if to get at them in one way, you can just ask, 
and what is like the overall feeling the overall tone and um there's there are wonderful moments of humor and there's wonderful moments of description where it's clear that mccarthy himself or the characters are appreciating and enjoying being able to be conscious of whatever environment it is it's often um new orleans or it's uh various more um sort of rural settings but um the overall feeling suggested by the structure of the book which seems to be this constellation of characters who have all in one way or another been just sort of ejected um is yeah it's a um a feeling of retreat or yeah exile maybe removal removal exile yeah various strangers strangers in a strange land yeah they are um though some of them from... very confidently like you, you know, like you mentioned um the the um what is her name deborah right uh the 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 tra well the transgender WC. The wonderfully uh, named Debussy Fields. Debussy, <laughs> as, yeah. As in the composer Claude Debussy. Debussy right. Fields. Yeah. There's pun, um, puns galore in the book. And maybe W.C. Fields. Yeah. Um, and, uh, right. And that's her assumed name, anyway. Um, yes, George, I'll do that in a second. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that, per that character has... Um, certainly moments of startling confidence, but also is quite broken and, and wounded, vulnerable. Um, and as you would expect, uh, you know, remember this, this book is set in 1980. Or, no, the Passenger is set in 1980 right. in New Orleans. It kind of, I guess it goes into 1981. Um, but uh, anyway. Um, the passage I want to read actually is 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 actually W.C. Fields. Okay, yeah. Text, so. Let's just to get some because these are actually minor characters, but maybe it's good to read some stuff from minor characters. I'd like to read John Sheedon, who's another guy who's yeah, he's hilarious, but also just tragically broken and and sad in a lot of ways. So um let's do that. And then yeah, and that was, this will give me time to stall and, and get back a little bit. He's a bit like a Falstaffian character, but with the kind of intellectual uh, veneer. Like he, he's obviously well-read and well-educated, but he's yes. just purely, you know, this seemingly hedonistic character who's, who's sort of, uh, ah, well, we'll learn more about him when you read. So why don't you go ahead? I mean, he's, um, uh, he, I mean, he's almost Im implausible, um, I would say. Apparently he and Bobby Western, the main uh well, one of the two main characters, a sibling pair, um, go back to their teenage years. They're, they're both from Knoxville. Um, so he stands, he's a kind of foil um, or not a doppelganger, but a, an alter ego or a Bobby Western who could have been, I guess, if Western had ever been a, a hedonist. Uh, she didn't even sounds like he didn't, a hedonist. Uh, anyway, so so he's this extremely grandiloquent, well, or, or articulate anyway, guy who's just a con artist and a petty criminal and um a lascivious man and um just all basically every nasty petty sort of thing you could be um not you know a terrible man but a, a, a paltry figure 
And yet he cuts um, he cuts a grand figure in the book in a way because of how he speaks. So at one point, um, you know, uh, Bobby Western's walking around and and runs into him, um, and uh, and and they just start talking as happens many times. This is a great one of the great things about setting a novel in 1980 is you don't. Characters can just like wander around and run into each other. And that's how they encounter each other instead of like having to text like, hey, are you going to be at this restaurant? I'll meet you there. Anyway, um, I kind of like that. They just sort of wander around New Orleans and run into each other at these random restaurants and bars. So he he runs into Sheen and, and sits there and has a conversation with him. And um, at one point, Sheen says the following um, and so, again, remember, this is set in 1980. And so it's post it's post the 60s and like the, the beginning of the sexual revolution. But um, but not by much. Uh, I mean, it's as close to um, what the summer of love as, as we are to like, um, you know, Obama's first term or something. And um so that's in the the historical context in which Sheedon is saying this, and um, he reflects on himself a lot, which in most characters would be infuriating, but he's articulate and weirdly prophetic, so you tolerate it. Um, he says, I, "I've encountered no greater mystery in life than myself. In a just society, I'd be warehoused somewhere," which is, of course, what happened to Bobby Western's sister. But of course, what really threatens the scoff law is not the just society, but the decaying one. It is here that he finds himself becoming slowly indistinguishable from the citizenry. He finds himself co-opted. Difficult these days to be a rake or a bounder, a roué, a deviant, a pervert. Surely you're joking. The new dispensations have all but erased these categories from the language. You can no longer be a loose woman, for instance, a trollop. The whole concept is meaningless. You can't even be a drug addict. At best, you're just a user. A user? What the fuck is that? We've gone from dope fiends to drug users in just a few short years. It doesn't take Nostradamus to see where this is headed. The most heinous of criminals clamoring for standing. Serial killers and cannibals claiming a right to their lifestyle. Like anyone else, I try to sort out where I fit into this menagerie. Without malefactors, the world of the righteous is robbed of all meaning. As for myself, again, if I can't be decorum's sworn enemy while savoring its fruits, I simply see no place for me at all. What would you recommend, Squire? That's what he calls Bobby Western. Go home and draw a warm bath and climb in and open a vein? Never mind. I see you weighing the merits of it. I enjoy my life, Squire, against all odds. Anyway, Hoffer has it right. Real trouble doesn't begin in a society until boredom has become its most general feature. Boredom will drive even quiet-minded people down paths they'd never imagined. So that's just one paragraph, uh, fairly typical of John Sheedon. And um, <laughs> yeah, it just seems coming from 1980. Uh, I, if I really had any skill, I, I would uh, have read that in some kind of, I don't know, Knoxvillean accent crossed with... <laughs> New Orleans, maybe, but I can't do either one of those. I'm a Yankee, so. 
Yes, he's an utterly venal character criticizing the dictatorship of relativism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, I think these minor characters, I mean, to me, uh, what I f- feel like the echo in his oeuvre that really resonates for me is The Crossing. It's not one of his most read books. In fact, I think a lot of people find it almost too much. It's it's the second book of the Border Trilogy. And, and it's sort of where he shifts into what I call visionary mode, where you get this parade of characters, shamans and, yeah, and yeah. recluses and hermits, and they tell these these stories, you know, they, they, they're kind of one after another of, uh, these visionary, sometimes post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic of any, in any sense, uh, were, uh, tales that, um, seem to get at kind of issues of theodicy, you know, justifying the ways of God to man. And I, I feel like some of these characters, they're maybe more mundane. They're not, they're not quite as mysterious and yet they have an inner kind of mystery themselves. And W.C. Field strikes that note for me. So let me read my little bit. They're they're having a meal at Galatoire's, which I think is fabulous. (laughs) And W.C. Fields is trying to share a little bit about the difficulty she's gone through in coming to understand her identity and her desire to be a woman. And she says, of course, by then I'd started drinking. And that almost finished me off. I was a born alcoholic. Luckily, I met someone, sheer blind luck. He got me into AA. I had trouble with the God thing. A lot of people do. And then I woke up one night in the middle of the night, and I was lying there, and I thought, if there was no higher power, then I'm it. And that just scared the shit out of me. There is no God, and I am she. So I began to really work on that. I'm still working on it. Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. (laughs) Excuse me. But I've made some progress. I was mad at him for screwing me up the way he did. But maybe he's not as perfect as people like to think. He's got a lot on his plate. He has to do it all himself. No help. Do you believe in God? That's Bobby Western asking. The truth? Sure. I don't know who God is or what he is. But I don't believe all this stuff got here by itself, including me. Maybe everything evolves just like they say it does. But if you sound it to its source, you have to come ultimately to an intention. Sound it to its source? You like that? Pascal. About a year after this, I woke up again, and it was like I heard this voice in my sleep, and I could still hear the echo of it, and it said, If something did not love you, you would not be here. And I said, okay. (laughs) And so, you know, for me, this this character of W.C. Fields, uh, W.C. Fields, it's sort of like, almost like a a Tiresias figure. You remember the the character from Greek mythology uh, who was uh, notably, you know, hermaphroditic male and female, almost like Anthony Blanche and Brideshead Revisited, same kind of character, where someone who has this experience of both dimensions of gender 
gains access to a kind of almost a prophetic uh, vision. And um, this is very much a shamanic uh, characteristic, right? Um, which, which he taps into in a few other places, maybe. But um, yeah, it's 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 um, at least momentarily and in glimpses being able to speak with some authority of the entire entire human race because encompassing you know both sexes um yeah well why, is, why don't we yeah why don't we tackle the main the main characters <laughs> i mean bobby and alicia have this you got both sexes there too yep they are of jewish heritage they their father was a scientist at for the nuclear program, the Manhattan Project, and the Oak Ridge refinery. So that brings in all the math and the science and the physics. What do you make of all that? Um, yeah, so uh, <coughs> like you say, these novels have, have like the whole kitchen sink thrown in. Um, Bobby Western works as a salvage diver when we first meet him in these books. Uh, and you get some remarkably knowledgeable, or so I assume, descriptions of the process of salvage diving. Um, and, um, but, but he's, he's an intellectual. So presumably the reason um, uh, John Sheedon calls him Squire is to kind of poke fun. And Sheedon knows his whole past, knows about his dead sister knows um, the most significant thing about this pair of siblings, namely that they were passionately in love with each other um, to the exclusion of being able to form romantic or erotic connections with anyone else. Um, and yeah, uh, which is obviously a pretty freaky thing to throw into a novel. And a lot of people, yeah. you know, rightly kind of seize up almost. So it's almost curious why McCarthy was willing to take such a risk of putting off the reader. Yeah, I, it's a really good question. Um, what did what did he gain by making them like this? I mean, there's no reason why Bobby Western couldn't have loved his sister very deeply, um, as siblings do, um, and and been tragically, you know, disturbed by um, her her death, but it's suicide. Um, when she's very young, 20, I think, um, and without having to have the incestuous element in there. So why why put that in? And, and I, I frankly don't have a good answer. I can't figure it out. Um, I was going to say that significantly they don't break the taboo. I mean, they, they both know about each other, that they're in love with each other, and that they don't want anyone else, but they don't... Um, you learn in Stella Maris, which is entirely comprised of a conversation of conversations between Alicia and her um, counselor, I think he's called, and basically a psychiatrist. Um, there's no um, narrative uh, narrator in the in the book. Um, you learn in that book at least her line is that they never had sex um, and they never. But she wanted to. She wanted to marry him. She wanted to have children with him. And I, and for a long time, actually, just until tonight, when I was going back through the books a little bit, I thought, well, you know, he did make sure that they didn't actually do that. 
that they, they, they that was their passion, but they didn't act on it. And then I read the part in The Passenger where Bobby Western has lost everything. He's been locked out of all of his assets. His, his life has been shut down in a really mysterious way that never gets resolved uh, and gets sort of just lost sight of to the point where you realize eventually like that eh, wasn't even the, it's, it's like a mystery thriller in places, but actually that's not the point of the book at all. It's a total red herring. But anyway, Bobby's got nothing and he goes off to Idaho in the winter from New Orleans, a bit of a climate geographical change and spends this winter there. Um, and he's like starving and shivering. And, you know, his mental um, stability is somewhat questionable. His sister's like certifiable, as we used to say, and uh, actually in an institution and, you know, undergoing therapy and stuff. But Bobby's not necessarily all that lucid himself. Um, you know, he at one point actually sees and, and talks with what was supposed to be um, a creature of his sister's imagination. And... Um, yeah, he's got all kinds of issues. And one of the things that happens up in Idaho in this winter is he has these bad dreams. And the only dream that the narrator gives us that he has, you can't, it's not definite, but you could construe it as a, as a nightmare recollection of an abortion, which perhaps his sister had. Um, so uh, I just discovered that, you know, like I say, going back through the books and realized, hmm, I don't know. I mean, because obviously Alicia is an unreliable narrator. Any any first-person voice in any book is always potentially unreliable. So, um, But they're both depicted as geniuses. I mean, as intellectually brilliant. So you, while they have mental health issues, obviously, uh, you might say Bobby does too. His maybe are just more sublimated than hers so there's this narrative insistence on their being brilliant like truly top of the line like and of course it seems to derive from their father the great nuclear scientist of the manhattan project so i'm just curious i know you care a lot about science and of course mccarthy famously has been hanging out at the santa fe institute which is sort of a (laughs) a great think tank for, you know, all these great minds, you know, they, they're probably best known, I guess, for the physicists, but also the mathematicians and math becomes itself a a subject of both books, especially Stella Maris. And so I think something about this lineage, this lineage from the, the Manhattan project, the nuclear atomic bomb through their kind of math physics genius to their mental issues, there's kind of something going on with a, that kind of cluster of themes. I just wonder if you thought at all about that. Yeah, I think the the easiest way to explain it is that um, there is nothing like mathematics to push the question of metaphysics. Um, you just can't get too deep into it before you have to confront um whether you think abstraction of any kind can be real so so the 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 fundamental um philosophical debate between what in the middle age later middle ages was realism versus nominalism and what later on would get slightly restylized as realism versus idealism 
Um, that just is intrinsic to math, higher mathematics, or, well, actually any number theory, anything, um, even arithmetic. So um, one of the most, there's basically two ways. I mean, there's actually a number of ways you can, you can get very nuanced about this. Uh, philosophy of mathematics is pretty fascinating stuff, but um, uh, th th you fundamentally are going to end up either being a realist or something else. In other words, you're going to believe that mathematics, mathematical objects enjoy some degree of being um, or, or you think they aren't. They don't. They're completely speculative. They're, they're unreal. They're um, a product of a, a particular kind of language or discourse or whatever you want to call it. Um, and they just exist inside of people's heads. And when there are no more people um, in whose heads math can exist, then there will be no more math. And um, people have said, because if, if you talk about music without language, or to quote the title of my novel, Absolute Music, if you talk about music of that kind, you're talking about something that can be reduced perfectly to mathematics. So music and math coincide there. And they're, they're, they're wonderful um arenas in which to to really put yourself to this question of do i believe that such things describe reality do they actually have reference real reference are there reference to all these you know partial differential equations or um does um a, a musical score which has no verbal apparatus of any kind nonetheless mean something outside of itself does it point outside of itself does it have some kind of transcendent intentionality and um one of the most interesting things about alicia who's the, the particularly genius of the two siblings the mathematical genius you know she's like at university of chicago um doing a phd or something like that um in math when she's like 17 um is that she is vehemently uh against what what gets called lumped together under the idea like pl platonist or platonic math realism some kind of notion that math is really is real that that it has this it does actually describe deep reality and she seems to be very at least on my reading um quite hostile to that i mean she's she the, the fact most great mathematicians have more or less assented to some kind of realism you can't really do math yeah. unless you unless you believe that you're doing something real i've um, actually yeah i've actually speculated that you know part of mccarthy's hanging out at the santa fe institute in a way is almost like a indirect indictment of the humanities world the literary world you know where everything is constructed you know reality is constructed is where anti-metaphysicalism kind of reigns in a way and that he that by hanging out with the scientists he's kind of putting in a vote for that connection to reality yeah except that um science i mean you know sort of the public face you know, of scientific discourse in in recent generations has been um totally materialistic naturalistic um in a way that's very different from but bizarrely complementary to how the humanities have been or the arts have been um 
it's just sort of one one side goes goes all in on matter on the physical nature and um the other goes all in on you know the socially constructed or whatever um but both are basically saying like you know there's nothing <laughs> ideas aren't real you know they're just they're they're tools they're they're what they're either they're systems of oppression or they're just you know fanciful elaborations or evolutionary tools or whatever but uh, there's a million ways to sort of undercut it but undercut platonism or transcendentalism or whatever you want to call it realism and um i i like that i buy that i mean i have I, and i can't blame him for it either <laughs> like i would i'd hang out at the santa fe institute if i could get a point across by doing it the question is did he did he, does he come by any metaphysical conviction there which he's trying to get across in these books and i don't or anywhere else and that I'm not so sure about, um, but but actually to bring this back around to the the question for me to elaborate on connection to contemporary fiction, um, he's definitely not going all in on on the social constructivism angle, um, even though Alicia is skeptical of um, any transcendent Platonist realist interpretation of mathematics. Um, she's actually just skeptical and confused about everything. She doesn't know, and she doesn't. She certainly doesn't allow that um, uh, that everything's reducible to some simplistic interpretation of things, um, a la you know naturalism, materialism, and um, and she's just sort of tortured, and she's very deeply moved by music. I, I like to read another passage later on that, in her voice um, about music, but because um, she plays. She has this incredibly expensive violin, um, and um, and she plays a little bit, and she just sort of loves the instrument itself. Um, she's into topology, which is the study of shapes, um, particularly uh, how shapes change uh, without being ruptured, um, and um, topology is capable of describing objects which cannot exist in our physical universe but so it's a, it's a excellent venue in which to think about like can math describe things that are more real than real you know can it get at something that's in some sense out there but that actually could never even be realized in our own regular world um and she applies that to the instrument itself to the violin um she's very confused and troubled um, but she's capable of being profoundly moved by music and being having a sort of awe, but a, a very terrified awe, sublime awe of mathematics, even if she refuses to commit to a Platonist interpretation of it, which I find really interesting. And these books, so so these books are uh, this welter and uneasy, um, almost combat of ideas. They're very much not ideas um and but my question is this i mean to the extent that we have some sympathy for the protagonists uh maybe not as much as as in many novels maybe maybe our distance from them is you know partly our horror horror at the incest theme and the fact that you know bobby is a very passive character in general just sort of seemingly letting things just happen around him uh, Alicia, you know, sometimes seems kind of very dark and terrifying. Um, but, you know, this heritage of the nuclear bomb of 
of science as potentially being for the real or against the real. I think these are related. Like, I think there's a critique of the characters as well as a desire on the author's part for us to be sympathetic. Like, they're not necessarily getting everything right. There's sometimes, there's an irony in the sense that maybe they're missing something that they shouldn't be missing, that they should be able to see something, but they just can't. Well, yeah, there's um, there's a character, I'm forgetting who it is now. Uh, it might even be the drunk guy hold up in the bayou who straight up tells Bobby at one point, everyone's born able to see the miraculous. You have to choose not to. That's almost exactly verbatim what he says. And um, and he's the same character who says he's had a vision of Jesus. Um, I, I think the uh, same character. Um, these guys, these, well, Bobby and Alicia are bombarded from all sides, uh, existentially, intellectually, by signals that could not be stronger there's more out there than you're letting yourself engage with um and it is something of a mystery to me why and maybe this is what you mean by critique implicit in the in the books why why they seem unreceptive to stuff why is alicia anti-platonist um why is bobby like constantly encountering all these crazy people who are have had amazing experiences of the transcendent or just the gift of being and people like wc um people like these weirdos and misfits that he hangs out with in new orleans and and they're just they're just totally uh just unreceptive to that at least yes. most of the time uh but yeah. I, I will say that at the end bobby is changing um if uh I usually can't stand people who are like character, you know, deep characters have to change and develop and grow and all this it sounds like trite advice to beginning writers. But, um, but Bobby does uh, seem to exhibit some significant change at the end, which I did find moving. Um, and uh, he, he's in, at this point, he's in Spain. Why Spain? No reason. There, there's no reason. He, he went, he, he he picks a place that he used to know when back in the days when he was driving race cars around Europe, and it's near it's uh, it's across from Ibiza, and um, he's living in a windmill. I mean, it doesn't get much more quixotic than that. And um, in Spain, living in a windmill in Spain. I mean, this is fairly heavy <laughs> um, signal here, and. Um, at that point, it's unclear how much time goes by. It could be quite quite a number of years, actually. Yeah. Um, after the the main events of the passenger, which is 1980, 81. And um he runs into uh he, he's just like he does nothing. Um, he's got a little bit of money, he lives in a windmill, he hangs out in cafes, he watches the ocean, occasionally he goes out to the island and has dinner at some rich friend's house, and um and he's just and, and he and he hangs out in churches, lights candles in churches. Yeah. Um, and he runs into this guy, some American he knows, um, who like doesn't appear before that, I don't think, or not significantly. It's not important who he is, really. Um, but the guy's like, What the heck are you doing out here? 
and um he just says like i'm learning to pray actually i mean it's really brief i can probably find it uh, at the end of the book here maybe um but um he's he's undergone some kind of change and he hasn't really been able to like live a normal life you, you kind of get the sense like that's never going to happen yeah um his friend's asking he says what about you he says i live in a windmill i like candles for the dead and i'm trying to learn how to pray what do you pray for i don't pray for anything i just pray i thought you were an atheist no i don't have any religion which has got to be one of the best little lines yeah, in the whole that's book. a great line yeah i mean the implication of course that atheism is a religion and that's not his religion yeah. Um, he doesn't actually have one, but he prays. And the kind of prayer he's describing there is a silent prayer, a centering prayer, a stillness, a quiet um, contemplative prayer. Sure. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, for me, I think the the fact that he's changing is, is, is important. But, you know, these books, and of course, Stella Maris ends, of course, with the character we know as chosen, you might say, the nihilistic answer, the suicide. Now, of course, she's young and troubled so we can soften our judgment of that. But I think one of the typical charges leveled against McCarthy, you know, and, and you can almost see it from, you know, pretty straightforward reading of the books is that he's a nihilist, you know, that he has a very dark view of the world. And I guess what the way I've tried to understand this is that I think people sometimes embrace the protagonist a little too directly and don't see this ironic distance that, you know, the yeah. fact of what they're missing. And I've, I'm spoke about this yeah. recently at a conference about the tragic vision of McCarthy, where uh, I point out, for example, in the border trilogy, you get these two, two great characters, John Grady Cole and Billy Parham, who are like, yes, they're cowboys. And yes, they're somewhat archaic figures in the mid-1940s, which is when the books take place, but they are really kind of heroic figures. They're actually representative of the best of American self-reliance and love of nature, and they're they're very self-disciplined characters. Uh, you know, they, they know how to relate to animals, but they have inner discipline, they're noble, they're generous, and yet they they continually come a cropper. They, they experience tragic events that they don't fully understand. And while I don't want to kind of hog all the time here elaborating it, part of my argument there is that, that that's kind of truly a tragic sensibility. After all, if you are, if you are a good character, but have a flaw, something that you miss, something you don't understand. I mean, these guys are they miss the kind of culture reflected in the Mexican culture that they travel into, a culture that's not obsessed by property and fixing stuff in terms of justice being always about trying to go back to square one. You know, Mexican culture is more of a tragic culture, accepting the reality of the impossibility of human beings fixing things that are broken. If you apply this to these characters of Bobby and Alicia and in these stories, you could you could argue that that they're brilliant and troubled, yes, but that they also miss. They come close. The characters are telling them, you know, these these side characters that we've been quoting. They're they're kind of getting messages of of truth and wholeness. They just don't get it. And to me, I think that's 
why I think <laughs> it's wrong to just assume that McCarthy is embracing nihilism or darkness. He always leaves this gap open for us to kind of interpret. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, um, even just in terms of the art of fiction and how, how a responsible reader should approach it. Um, you, you, can't, uh, you can't let the predominant tone or feeling count for too much. You have to remember there's a distance there that matters. But I want to go back to what you were trying to bring up earlier about the the atom bomb and the fact that the Western's sibling, the Western sibling's father was on the Manhattan Project. Um, I mean, so unlike with the Border Trilogy, which is happening at the pivotal, if I remember correctly, in the pivotal sort of decade in the 1940s, basically, right? Maybe the 50s, maybe, uh, but like, it feels like an archaic older world, right? And um, this is 1980 and after, except, well, Alicia's Alicia's book, I guess, is 1972. But still, it's late. It's, it's decidedly post-war. It's post-Hiroshima, it's post-Auschwitz. And those are the two things both related to jews because of the ethnicity of some of the people including their father who worked on the manhattan project um einstein and all these other people uh so judaism is bound up with this in a really interesting way but i mean you know most famously it's it's, it's almost it's 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 laying like an oracle over western literature for decades now adorno's pronouncement that after auschwitz it is barbaric to write poetry and you can swap in for poetry, really, any imaginative literature that uh, aspires to present um, any sort of enchanted or metaphysical world. It's just inconceivable after the 1940s because of what we did, um, both what the Nazis did, but then also what what the West did or the West, the Allies did in, in developing and immediately deploying um, as soon as it was even remotely feasible an, an atomic weapon. Um, so, um, you know, these guys are living that out. So I, I asked myself a lot while reading this book, why the heck is this thing set in 1980? Who gives a shit about 1980? Why am I reading about 1980 New Orleans? It doesn't make any sense. And that specific year I don't think matters. But what he needed to be doing was working with the children of the generation that committed the Shoah, that endured the Shoah, that dropped the atom bomb, that had the atom bomb dropped on. He needed to be working with the children of that generation because he's looking at how, what happens when you live that out, that legacy. What happens when that is your immediate legacy? And so if there's a reason why these guys are excused, um, Bobby and Alicia, from um, being re as receptive as they might be to some of the signals from um, a transcendent world that they're, they seem to be getting or that their own genius gives them access to, especially in Alicia's case, it does seem to be that they're they are they are very consciously haunted by that, especially Bobby. I mean, it actually says that the narrator tells us at one point. Um, uh, uh, let me let me find it here. Um, that uh, he, he's conscious of that. 
uh, the passage is Western, that would be Bobby, fully understood that he owed his existence to Adolf Hitler, that the forces of history which had ushered his troubled life into the tapestry were those of Auschwitz and Hiroshima, the sister events that sealed forever the fate of the West. Sister, sister events. Since when are events feminine? That word is obviously a deliberate usage uh, in this particular context. Um, the word sister means a lot to Bobby Western. But um, yeah, so I mean, that's that's right there on the page. Yeah. And I, I, I actually kind of... Um, was was incredibly moved uh, uh, when I when I read that and realized how overtly he was working with that in these books because we are actually getting away from that. I mean, McCarthy's an old dude, um, and thank God for it because that's why he's able to do this. We're we're getting past the point where this is within living memory, and we're starting to lose sight of just how. Um, epochic that the the those that time was yeah um and uh the the novels come as a sort of a sort of if they're sort of tugging you on the sleeve urgently and saying we're not over that yet by the mm -hmm. way i don't know you know you might have been lulled into some sense of uh security in the last 20 or 30 years because more and more people can't remember that and um you know we for the most part uh despite obviously continual strife in various parts of the world been extremely comfortable but um these novels are a sharp reminder of that that prophetic thing that adorno said and i think that um that's welcome uh because there hasn't in a way been been any great sort of metaphysical progress since then or philosophical progress since then but what i want to but i do think that there is a um a renewed desire and willingness to bring the transcendent into fiction that's why i kind of talked about that earlier in the, so the larger context for these books um and sort of trying to reimagine that yeah um, i and, mean is there a way is there a way to draw some kind of line between um, the dangers of abstraction from the world um, of a kind of solipsism uh, or denial of, of realism in any reasonable definition uh, and the kind of turning inwards. I mean, an atom bomb is like turning inwards, right? It's, it's, it's literally created by these other explosions that force things together uh these atoms together and that that releases the the energy and of course incest is a coming together of two similar things that are kind of you know wow. otherwise should be touching the world outside not each other uh and so i wonder if there's kind of there's a kind of dark theme here that manifests in the kind of struggles that these these two characters have because that's the world that they've inherited and they're struggling to figure out how to how to escape it, and they can't, and that's the tragedy. Yeah, they they it's right. They, it's like it's not that they're they don't they're not given the 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 metaphysical inputs. It's just that they can't accept it. They 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 don't their legacy won't let them um, accept it. And um, I hadn't thought about the <laughs> analogy between incest and um, 
nuclear nuclear fission would have been the first one, so splitting them apart. But then they developed bombs that would fuse the atoms, uh, and those are even far worse. Actually, that's what our nuclear arsenal is now. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the, the the writer that I actually started to feel some kin kinship with this this particular set of books. Uh, and maybe it's just because I was reading something, but I felt there was kind of a a Kafka dimension. Yes. Um, yeah, I was actually just reading reading a beautiful piece in the New Criterion uh, came out a few years ago, How to Read Kafka by John M. Ellis. And so, for example, in that piece, <laughs> he says, for the Enlightenment thinkers, the, the the people that Kafka, you know, presumably lived in a culture that accepted. For the Enlightenment thinkers, the consistent application of reason would solve all the problems created by human foolishness. But that's not the way things work out in the borough, which is the story is being critiqued. There, reason keeps coming up against the problem, problems to which there are no answers. And it's precisely because the animal can't stop trying to reason out the perfect solution to the borough's design that he is driven mad. In Kafka's story, reason doesn't overcome our mental weaknesses because it's driven by and intertwined with them. And that just really felt to me like really resonant, you know, even with the whole notion of the, the thriller element of the novel that, that peters out, as you say, that, you know, it's kind of very postmodern in the sense that there's a mystery that nobody ultimately solves or even seems interested in solving. Yeah, they forget about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, that's actually where the Kafkaesque element came in for me, though, <laughs> because. Um, well, there's two, there's two, there's two things that made it reminded me of Kafka or Philip K. Dick, maybe. Um, and uh, one is that, yeah, that that mystery thriller element that is super weird, makes no sense. It, it's it's so unlikely uh, the way that that Bobby Western seems to be pursued by the government for sure. IRS. Men in black. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, yeah, literally. I mean, the, at one at one point. Uh, but also there's a strong suggestion by the mob somehow because he's got this mafia friend that he goes to his restaurant and we get treated to this huge theory about, or not mafia friend, but he's like, he runs a restaurant that the, the mafia frequents or something, whatever. And uh, we get treated to this huge theory about the JFK assassination um, uh, out of nowhere, <laughs> thanks to this character. And um uh, yeah, so he, he's like pursued by these um, nefarious governmental or or um, like para para state forces um, that uh, just just vanish at some point. But they're so implausible. I mean, if if the government wants to screw with you, they're just going to do whatever they want to do. There's no, there's not this weird cat and mouse game where like the IRS he goes into an IRS office and talks to the guy, and the guy's like, "Yeah, you're in trouble." It's like, well, if the IRS wants to arrest you, they're going to arrest you. And at one point, the the mafia character is like, "What you don't understand is that you are under arrest. They just haven't taken you to jail yet, or something like that." It's like, no. <laughs> No, that's not how it works. You're just yeah. going to be arrested. Like there's this whole legal system that you're going to get dragged through or or they'll just find you and, and, and drag it out. Um, but um, uh, yeah, there's sort of like a soft absurdist. Yeah, so absurdist, it's... but but not in a kind of dire Camusian 
Sartrean, but a kind of almost comic. Kind yeah, of soft comic absurdism. Because it's like in the background, it's like driving the plot, which is basically the point of the plot is basically to push Bobby Western into weirder and weirder locales. Like first he has to go. Oh shoot! Now I'm getting it mixed up. But he ends up living on a beach in in like Mississippi um, or Alabama or something, and and then he's in Idaho, and then eventually he's in Spain and in a windmill. And it's like, all right, at that point, the guy's done. Like no one's no one's going to care about him anymore now. But um, it just gets pushed further and further into weirdness, and it's so implausible that you're like, this feels like a Kafka novel where there's just this this force that is never going to let up and it's just going to make his life hell and it, you're never going to understand it. It's just, it's, it's his fate. Um, it, because it's because he had this terrible father, well, not terrible father, but a father involved in a terrible thing. And, um, you know, and, and, and an incestuous passion. And so it's, yeah, this is his fate. Um, it's almost like a Greek tragedy in that way. Uh, you, you brought up tragedy earlier. Um, and certainly incest plays a huge uh, role in that genre. So, um, yeah, that, that was Kafka's to me. But the other thing, of course, we haven't talked about at all that could make it surreal in some way is the visions that Alicia has, mainly Alicia, um, that are um, so strange. They're also so. I mean, the thing that Kafka does so well is is turn the bureaucratic world of, um, you know, bourgeois Europe at its heyday into it exposes it as the hellish system that it was. And Alicia's vision. So Alicia has this this recurring vision of a, a, a weird figure she refers to only as the kid, um, with some obvious references to previous McCarthy and that and. Um, he comes with a whole entourage and um, is a bizarrely, I found, entertaining and kind of sympathetic almost character. Um, and at one point in the novel, Bobby gets to meet this guy too and have a big long conversation with him. And what you get the sense of in, in this guy is almost like somebody out of, like if you could splice C.S. Lewis and Kafka it's just maybe the only first time anyone's ever suggested this in the history. <laughs> uh, then that's like where this thalidomide kid would come from. Um, he's like, uh, wait, he's not, he's not diabolical, uh, but you get, he's, he's some kind of servant or like minor functionary in the bureaucracy of the transcendental universe. Uh, he's, well, and, and he ties in, he ties into McCarthy's uh, obsession he actually wrote an essay about a few years back about the nature of the unconscious, I think. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, in, in some ways, Alicia has, because of her genius, I guess, or, or just, you know, the, the, the kind of amazingness of her mental life. I think she has more like direct conversations because, because I think the idea of the, you know, as McCarthy puts it, is that the unconscious is this, they're on 20, the unconscious is going 24 seven in the background, keeping you alive and occasionally sort of slipping little ideas and thoughts your way in roundabout ways, which is often how scientific breakthroughs seem to be made through yeah. some kind of dream or, 
some kind of gift that's given in a kind of vision. And so the thalidomide kid becomes a kind of almost like here's the unconscious breaking out of its background role and like getting in your face and making all kinds of weird kind of puns and wordplay, getting words wrong, malapropisms, kind of like that almost sense of a kind of mumbling, mumbling consciousness beneath consciousness. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus, Jessica, I love all his interjections. These alliterative interjections he had with with proper names, uh, never calling her by her real name. Um, Yeah. uh, I I mean, it's an incredibly rich part of the book, actually, and uh, almost worth the price of admission right there. These, this ridiculous, uh, but also profound and terrifying um, ongoing hallucinatory well except that it's it's just clearly not i i'm gonna come down and say no they're not hallucinations alicia is gifted so gifted uh with a sort of prophetic vision of reality that she herself can't even begin to handle it and like prophets before her is driven completely insane eventually but um uh she's yeah she she has these conversations with with these these this guy and and his entourage that um point to a kind of it's almost like some zen joke or something like it's like what is the meaning of the universe the the thalidomide kid you know (laughs) like that that's who's running the show um except he's not he's he's very in in, um um intent on always insisting that he's he's not in charge you know so um but it's just it's one more window into the transcendent that she gets but it's an absurd window it's a window she can't accept or it's a window that doesn't ever do anything for her and and mccarthy's own ideas about the unconscious i don't i mean i don't know honestly how that could square with what he shows us in the novels um like uh it's uh he he seems to think the and he has a I think even has Alicia say this in the second book that the unconscious is a machine for running an animal or a, a mechanism for something a program for running an animal and I just don't even see how from like an evolutionary biology standpoint that makes any sense um, it, it's obviously functions too erratically to to be any kind of real aid in day-to-day or even long-term survival so um, well i see it as paradoxical at the very least because it also seems to give gifts like it it almost seems to be a means of grace in some in some moments even while it maybe is also characterized as mechanistic yeah like i find the wordplay so much fun because you know it's not just malapropisms there's kind of some kind of linguistic energy that the kid has got and and it's suggestive and it's metaphorical and it it plays you know it plays some pretty interesting games with language so yeah, i don't know I, I can see this yeah. very joyce actually yeah. um is where is maybe the kid's uh favorite reading material or something <laughs> i'm trying to remember if he comes up so a lot of people are mentioned in in the books and um someone in the in the chat just uh, brought up wittgenstein who shows up in there um spengler shows up in the books um there's there's a um a decent number anyway of big time intellectual figures from roughly the last hundred years um who make an appearance in here and um 
I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know exactly like what to make of it, except, well, so I, I kind of want to address a couple of things that people have, have said here. I'm trying, yeah, we to, need, we need I'm trying to, to talk and, and read a very limited time. amount of time left. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and get back maybe to what I said earlier, but, but the bringing in Wittgenstein and, 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 um, the, the line, what we can't talk about, we must pass over in silence. Um, so, I mean, I think uh, one thing I want to say, I want to put in a word for um, experimental fiction. And um, I, I think there's a kind of fiction, maybe that's the wrong word for it, that um, tries to push push things to the limit. And I, I tried to write something about this a couple of years ago when I was reading uh, Jon Fossa, the, the Norwegian writer's latest book, Septology, um, which is this huge three-volume novel. Um, and and I thought about it a great deal when I was working on uh, Gerald Murnane, uh, 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 Australian author, almost exactly the same age, if not precisely, as Cormac McCarthy um, a few years ago. And, uh, you know, there, there's a kind of writing that um, tries to get up to the limit of language. And it tries to get up to the point where you, you just can't, um, you can't say anything more. But at that point, your silence or your skepticism, your indecision is not uh, empty of significance. It's the silence of having done as much as you could in the, the via positiva or cataphatic way. And, you, and you've got up to the point where you, you can't um, say anything anymore. And I felt maybe like these books were it's a terrifying place to be at in real life when you sort of feel like you've got to the end of language. And I, I just keep coming back to that moment at the end of The Passenger where Bobby Western is saying he prays, but he doesn't pray for anything. He just prays. Um, contemplative, apophatic prayer. And, and like... Um, I feel like the that, that that if I had to if I had to sort of state the overall feeling of the books in a less um I don't know maybe melodramatic way or maybe more I don't know than calling it elegiac like I did at the beginning um I would call it kind of apophatic they they're they're books about these these siblings who yeah they they're they're tortured by, by all these things that are just beyond their control, who their right. father was, their moment in history, um, and the fact that they have a passion for each other that ruins the possibility of romantic, erotic connection with anyone else in a healthy way. Um, they're, 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 those all are horrifying things. They're big themes, and they impinge on these yeah. characters' fates. But... Um, but ultimately, like you pointed out earlier, they're geniuses and they're able to think up sort of to the limits of thought and push language to the limits of language. You know, right. John Sheedon is a guy who can get to the limits of language and just be fun dancing around there <laughs> is, yes. with his hyper articulateness. Your pleasure. But Bobby and Alicia get there and realize it's a terrifying There's, darkness. Yeah, serious that, questions. That yeah. stares back at them. And there are some people who get to that point and 
they realize it's an encounter with the divine or something. And there's other people who get to that point, like Alicia, who thinks that all it reveals is this, what she calls the architron, this diabolical foundation of reality. Right. And, and, you know, and and I think alongside that elegiac element, you know, there is a sense (laughs) of sorrow that haunts the books and that goes along with, uh, with elegy. And, And it also goes along with this kind of consistent, marion imagery that it kind of runs in a sense from the beginning to the end if you if you think about it the very first page of the passenger is this you know guy coming farmer coming upon the body of alicia uh which is kind of frozen in a kind of perfection you can imagine kind of the blue of the snow and the sunlight being reflected and what does he say to himself, kind of mumble to himself? Tower of Ivory, House of Gold, which yeah, are yeah. classic lit- litany of the Virgin Mary. Yeah. Also a Joyce connection. And then the second book itself is called Stella Maris, which is Star of the Sea. It's another, another of Mary's names. So you have all this science, but you still have religion, even if it's, inconclusive somewhat agnostic kind of hopeful hoping hoping against hope i certainly don't want to baptize cormac mccarthy but i but i don't think he fits into some easy kind of nihilistic narrative that a lot of people who get scared off by the violence and and the darkness are tempted to think I don't. I don't think you could possibly write books like this. You couldn't even want to if, if that's how you felt about things. What would be the point? <laughs> what? Um, yeah, the Marian stuff. I mean, I don't. I, that's that is mysterious. I haven't given it enough thought. Except, so so you've mentioned passivity before. Actually, how Bobby's like that. Especially, he seems just um, let things happen to him. Um, but you know, I mean, we we have a, I would say, an unduly negative view of passivity, or what we call passivity, in the modern West. Um, and uh, there's another way of looking at Bobby as a kind of Marian figure, and he's willing to let things befall him and not seek after his own ambition. Um, something that Alicia actually lacks. She has these very strong desires. Um, She pursues her intellectual passions. um, And she has a very vehement desire to be with her brother and have a child with him. And she's not um, too reticent about saying that in her book. Uh, So she's not quite like that. But that is sort of maybe what saves Bobby, actually, is he lets himself just be pushed around and... Um, it's a very, I like it. It's, a, you know, I do a lot of martial arts stuff, especially Tai Chi, and, and it's actually a really important principle there. You know, you, you let you let the other force um, try to do whatever it's trying to do, and then you can use that against it or um, or more easily get out of its way. And that's actually kind of what preserves Bobby. I mean, yeah, he gets pushed around and he ends up living in a shack on the Gulf of Mexico and he ends up living in a barn in Idaho in the winter. And he ends up living in a freaking windmill in Spain. Um, so he's not exactly a worldly success, but he survives this weird Kafkaesque thing that's 
pursuing him um this sort of hideous expression of his his legacy is the son of a manhattan project scientist and um and he does that maybe you could read it anyway by being passive by by giving a fiat to his strange fate absolutely and that yeah that is so marion be it done to me according to thy word and and again people look at that and they 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 can critique it and act as if it's just giving into the power structure and yet there's there's so much that that misses there's such a a deep awareness of the fact that we can't automatically fix things the way that his characters often want to do especially john and billy and the border trilogy you know yeah. that there that sometimes you need to let things flow over you and learn to be sculpted by them and it's yes that's suffering and sorrow in a way but it's also wisdom and it's also uh, humility in a sense and the refusal of hubris which which is so, so attractive but it ends up in that self-destruction you know in that fusion reaction that that slams the world together instead of opening out into into grace so so yeah well gosh um we are running out of time literally and 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 so much so that i'm not sure we can even do justice to the questions that have been posed it feels like we should have another hour to do justice to those um yeah i, I, I love that ian mcgilchrist comes up there at the end uh master and his emissary or or his um ian mcgilchrist is the author and um uh and he's got a huge two-volume thing the matter with things uh is his more recent publication which i i'm not done with yet but um because it's like two thousand pages but um that's a great that's a great thing that came to, I, that did come to mind for me reading these books uh benjamin that, yeah i um did think of of mcgilchrist and um yeah but there are a lot of wonderful questions david foster wallace comes up and that would actually would be a great um he yeah he's someone who who could have gotten mentioned earlier too because uh, i mean yeah obviously tragically dead these what i don't know it's 2008 or something but right um, i could see him going in a direction weirdly like these books um uh and they're what two two whole generations apart really uh yeah Carthy and wallace and yet yeah. there is a weird convergence there um maybe especially with where wallace was going at the end of his life um but well like pale king but um uh the storytelling thing um yeah I, I my consolation is that we've we have spoken to some extent to some of these questions yeah and, uh, yeah we, we've managed to get a few of them they're, they're, they're wonderful though um yeah uh th there's a lot to think about in these books i mean they're really quite profound and i, I one thing maybe last thing I'll, I'll say about it is that um uh i initially um well an old friend of mine from grad school uh who actually first introduced me to Cormac McCarthy's work um I texted him when I when I was reading these books and I was like surely you've read these you know what like how do you what's your take and he, he hated it he couldn't read the second one he thought Stella Morris was just unreadable he said I was completely shocked um I kind of understood because at first Alicia really I didn't I didn't care for her as a character um in, in the passenger we only get her through these um 
interludes outsized yeah beginnings where she's interacting with the kid and then in Stella Maris it's entirely conversational and she's in conversation with this one particular person and she's fairly hostile and kind of weird to this guy um so she's not really given a space in which to be a character as fully fledged as her brother is who interacts with all different kinds of people um you know weird as they are and is really out there in the world and so it's hard to feel sympathetic for her but you know as as the weeks have gone by since i've read these books i find myself recalling her character more and more vividly and with more sympathy um and there's something haunting that at least so far is inexplicable to me about that um but mccarthy tapped into something here that i don't claim at all to fully understand yet and and particularly by by creating this the sibling combination which is really quite an unusual thing um to have siblings like this uh being the, well, incestuous siblings i guess i should just come out and say and um and yet he pulled it off in, in a astonishing way so yeah, yeah a real, real masterpiece i think yeah I, and one we're going to be unpacking for a long long time to come all right. Well, before Zoom literally cuts us off, let me wrap up by saying that we'll be announcing the date of our next podcast soon. Uh, Slant actually has three books coming out in February, all with ties to a major cultural event that will take place February 17th and the 19th. It's called The New York Encounter, and it is free and open to the public. I'll be doing a session there where uh, I'll be interviewing Ron Hansen and Christopher Beha, two great novelists. So if you're in the New York area, you should definitely check out The New York Encounter. The three books that we'll release on the 15th of February are Cry of, <clears throat> Cry of the Heart on the Meaning of Suffering by Lorenzo Albacete, The Miracle of Hospitality by Luigi Giussani, and Everything I Did, I Did for Happiness, The Life of Enzo Piccinini by Marco Badazzi. You can learn more about these titles and even pre-order them by going to their respective web pages at slantbooks.org. Tonight's episode of Slantcast has been recorded and will be soon available on both our YouTube channel and, of course, wherever you find your podcasts. Remember that you can now subscribe to Slantcast through all the major outlets, including Spotify, Apple, Audible, SoundCloud, and others. Finally, remember to tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Thanks again and see you next time.